0: It would have to be the most famous, most recognisable painting in the world, wouldn't Is of course, the Mona Lisa, which is kept, as you may know, at the Louvre in Paris, where it is displayed behind bulletproof glass in its own $7 million purpose-built <clears throat> climate-controlled room. Approximately 6 million people visit the Louvre every year to see it that is the combined population of both sydney and brisbane every year the entire population of dubbo every 2 days filing past to look at it here's the thing about the mona lisa though indeed most works of art great masterpieces bear witness not so much to how special the subject is but how special the artist is. Isn't that true? In other words, most people don't stand in front of the Mona Lisa and say, wow, that Mona Lisa, she was a really nice person. Most of them stand in front of the painting and say something like, wow, that Leonardo da Vinci, he could paint. Great works of art testify to the genius of their creator. Now, friends, in today's Bible passage, that is effectively what is said about God's people and God himself, that God's people as masterpieces, as it were, of God's purposes and plans, God's people display the genius of God himself. Now, all this comes up in Isaiah this morning because God is continuing to reassure them about their future. That's because, remember, in this, the second half of the book, it's all about comfort. Israel have a future time of punishment coming. They're going to be conquered at the hands of the Babylonian uh, empire into the future. But God is wanting them to know that beyond that punishment, better things are to come. Beyond the punishment, sins will be paid for. Beyond the punishment, God himself will come to get them and bring them home. And last week, God uncovered a a new development in the plan that a mysterious servant would be involved somehow in this rescue. Well, all this positiveness and comfort about good things to come, that's all continuing into this morning's section as God now stresses to Israel just how much they mean to him as God stresses to them how central they are to his plans to transform the world. In fact, precisely because Israel are so central to his plans, because he is going to do so much for them, that will in turn enable them to be powerful witnesses for him in the world. And just like a great masterpiece testifies to the greatness of its creator, God's people will be testimony. To the world of the greatness of God. And friends, here's the thing. Pretty much everything that God says of Israel this morning, it is even more true of us because of Jesus Christ. Before we get to that, though, let's firstly think about today's passage in its original context. And in that sense, the first half of the reading kicks off with a big emphasis, did you notice, on Israel being precious to God. And their preciousness to God is seen in three main ways. The first one being that God will redeem them, verse 1. Now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. Now, the main imagery that's happening in that verse is it's playing on the idea of a kidnapping. Just like in the kid's... Uh, spot people being held for ransom so think of someone being captured held hostage because remember the original context of these words God has told Israel that a Babylonian conquest is coming as punishment for their sin Israel are going to be captured they're going to be bound by the Babylonian empire they're going to be held exiles in Babylon but God is saying here look don't be afraid for he has redeemed them in other words he has paid for their release that's what redeemed means So you might go down to cash converters, or I think it's called country cash and trade nowadays. But but you go down there and you sell something to them, but you might go back later at a later date and redeem it back. That's what the word means. You buy it back. Well, Israel are facing captivity by Babylon, but God has already made payment to buy them back. Fear not, I have redeemed you. And notice how God leads into this statement by reminding them that he created them, that he formed them. He calls them Jacob. Referring back to their early ancestor in the Old Testament, the very first person in the Bible who was ever called Israel. And so is distress, that God is not simply going to redeem them out of sort of a sterile sense of obligation. You know, I suppose I better. No, no, he knows them. He loves them ever since they existed. God himself was the one who brought them into existence. And so the idea of God not redeeming his people, it's about as unlikely as a parent not wanting to redeem back their own child. They are that dear to him. Doesn't end there. So precious are they that even once they are released, he will be with them to make sure they get back home safely. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. The flames won't set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. And this is actually tapping back into something we heard from God a couple of weeks back. Remember how he was going to make straight paths in the wilderness so as to get his people, Uh, of God coming to get his people so as to safely bring them home once they've been released. Remember all that? Well, it's now rolled back into this chapter so as to keep building this picture of how cherished and adored and precious Israel are to him. A time of captivity is coming. It's a punishment they've brought on themselves, but despite that time of punishment, God will redeem them back and he will personally step in and be with them so as to safely bring them home. Indeed, a third measure of how precious they are is the ransom price that he's prepared to pay for them. Verse 3. I will give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honoured in my sight and because I love you. I will give men in exchange for you and men in exchange for your life. Don't be afraid, I'm with you. Now, <clears throat> these are intriguing little verses. I will give Egypt for your ransom. I will give men in exchange for you. What, What's going on here? Well, at this point in the book, it's actually a little obscure. It's the sort of thing that Isaiah drops into the text so as to prompt us, the reader, to keep reading. So that we'll get to discover perhaps what he's talking about because it does become a bit clearer the further you read into the book. Particularly so next week when we will discover that God's plan to release Israel out of captivity in Babylon, his plan involves raising up the Persian Empire to conquer Babylon. It's actually a very bold and surprising move that God's going to do. We'll think more about it next week. But the point being made here, though, is when God speaks of giving Egypt for their ransom, giving men in exchange for God, he's referring to the fact that he's prepared to give Persia nations. He's prepared to give Persia a vastly expanded empire in exchange for them then releasing Israel. That Israel is so precious to him that God will give Persia countries like Egypt so that Persia will then be powerful enough to conquer Babylon who will therefore set Israel free. He will give up entire nations so as to save his people Israel. It's a very interesting image this. Uh, we'll think more about it next week. For now though, it's just appreciate it's rolling into this building picture uh, of how precious they are to God the sort of ransom that he's prepared to pay in order to redeem them. No price is too much to pay as a ransom, so so cherished are they to him. And it now all leads into the second main movement of this morning's reading in which precisely because God is prepared to do all of these things, precisely because Israel are so precious to God, that will in turn enable Israel to be a powerful witness about God all of which is reflected in what I think is a bit of a court scene that now develops from verse 8 on. And here things again get a bit cryptic because from verse 8 on, Isaiah is wanting to engage our imaginations and visualise some things. And again, it's one of those passages that perhaps isn't fully clear until a little bit later on in the book. And you read a little bit later in the next few chapters and suddenly you think, oh, okay, I think I now understand what was going on back there in chapter 43. but, But... Here in verse 8, still a little bit cryptic, but I think we're meant to be visualising a bit of a court scene where God himself is in the dock. God himself is being called on to justify why he is any better than any of the other nations' God. What makes the God of Israel so special? Well, the scene opens with Israel being led in. Verse 8. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. Now, these blind and deaf people are Israel. Okay, It is a description used of Israel in the previous chapter. And in our court scene at this point, we're meant to be feeling that perhaps God's claim to be the only true God doesn't look all that strong. His people, his witnesses, if you want, are blind and deaf. Blind and deaf eyewitnesses don't often make a strong case. All the other nations with their rival gods, they now file into the courtroom. Verse 9. All the nations gather together. All the peoples assemble. So you got the scene? Hush silence in the courtroom. God's blind and deaf witnesses are standing there. And they are now confronted by all the other nations. Is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the only true God or not? Well, God now plays his trump card, which is... Which of your other gods have foretold what is going to take place? In other words, all the things that God has just mentioned about Israel being precious and being rescued and being redeemed from Babylon, not only which of the other gods is capable of doing that, which of the other gods is even capable of predicting it? Verse 9. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say it's true. And now it's as if he turns to Israel. Verse 10, you are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understood that I am him. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Saviour. Starting to feel the point, despite despite Israel being blind and deaf, they are in fact, just by their very existence, a powerful witness of God in the world. Because even though they're blind and deaf, they are also precious. And they have been redeemed. And God has even said that they would be before it happened. Because remember, Isaiah is saying all of this hundreds of years before it happened. God said a time, of Babylon, a time of punishment with Babylon was coming, and it did. God said that he'll rescue and redeem them out of Babylon, and he did. In fact, God's going to go on, and next week, he's even going to give a lot more detail about how they're rescued. He's even going to name the Persian emperor. He'll do it, even though at the time of Isaiah, that emperor himself hadn't even been born yet. And it comes true. And so back in the courtroom, court God's point is, name the God capable of that. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Verse 13. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is a pretty powerful word this this morning, I think. I, mean, I know in the second half of the passage, it's a bit to visualise and get our heads around, but it is a point worth seeing. Israel are a precious people to God, so precious, that he is prepared to redeem them out of Babylon with the ransom of other nations. And because he is prepared and able to do that, and because he is able to declare ahead of time that he's going to be able to do that, That makes Israel a powerful witness, that there is no other God. And it doesn't matter that they're even blind and deaf. Virtually by their simple existence, they testify to the greatness of God. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. And how much more are we powerful witnesses, that he is God, given what Christ has done for us. I mean, I think this is truly one of those spots in the Old Testament where it's a matter of looking at Israel and looking at us and thinking, wow, how much more the case for everything that God says there for us because of Jesus. Think of the three ways that Israel's preciousness is displayed in the passage. They were redeemed. God is with them, ransom paid. How much more those three with us? God told Israel that they would be redeemed. We also have been redeemed. We looked at it a little while back in Ephesians earlier this year. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. God told Israel he would be with them. Jesus himself, even more emphatically, says to his disciples, and surely I am with you, always, to the very end of the age. And God paid a lavish ransom for Israel. Ransom's been paid for us, even more lavish. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, have you any idea how precious you are to God? Have you any idea what a powerful witness that makes you for him. I started this morning by mentioning a famous piece of work, let me, uh, art, let me close by mentioning another. I, I think I've told this story before but I think it really helps make the point. This work of art is Michelangelo's statue of the David. Michelangelo actually sculptured the David out of a piece of marble which he had been working on, which sorry, which had been worked on but had been messed up by another sculptor. Uh, no one knew what to do with a piece of marble anymore because it had been so wrecked by this other sculptor. But it's told that Michelangelo couldn't take his eyes off it. Uh, every day he would walk to where it was tucked away behind the cathedral church at, the, at uh, Florence and Michelangelo would look at it and measure it, even caress it. And eventually he was successfully commissioned to work on it. Selected in front of Leonardo da Vinci, actually. And for two years, Michelangelo worked away on it. Ingeniously using the mistakes of the previous sculptor to his own advantage. And so a hole that had been mistakenly drilled right through the block, he turned that into the hole between the legs of the David. And so he worked and he worked and he worked, and he eventually produced one of the greatest masterpieces the world has ever seen from a spoilt piece of marble. That is what God has done for us. We are spoilt by our sin, we are flawed and scarred by our rebellion against God. We deserve to be abandoned. And yet God has turned us into a masterpiece of grace. Testimony of his greatness. Even more so than Israel. And friends, our mission, our task, our privilege, by our lives and our actions and our words, simply sometimes by our very presence in the community, our God-given mission is to bear witness to God. And that is not a burden. Please don't feel guilty about that. Don't go down, you know, I'm not very good at witnessing pathway. This is not to beat ourselves up over. This is to be excited by. Don't worry that you mightn't be good with words. Don't worry that you might mightn't not be confident with people. Don't worry that you might know all the answers to every question. Being blind and deaf didn't stop Israel being witnesses in the Old Testament. Often it's our very weaknesses that God uses to do his work. But friends, we've been redeemed. God is with us. No less than Christ's life was paid as our ransom. You're a masterpiece of grace. So how much more can God say to us what he said to Israel in today's passage? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. I'll pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and your majesty and your sovereignty in saving us in such an extraordinary way. And Father, we would like to ask that you would be with us and help us and you continue your good work in us so that we, as individual brothers and sisters and corporately as early church, that we might be indeed a powerful witness for you so that the glory that you really deserve might be granted to you, and that men and women and boys and girls might come to see you as the one true God that you are. In Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray this. Amen.